Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and today we're speaking with Marina Alexandrova, Senior Lecturer in Slavic Studies at University of Texas in Austin, and a woman who knows a thing or two about spiritual movements, particularly in Russia, particularly at the fin de siècle and early 20th century periods. Marina, how are you? How are you doing? Hi, doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this because we are going to talk about one of the most seminal, important figures, not only of the history of 20th century esotericism, but of the 20th century, full stop, but a woman who's largely been written out of mainstream history. I refer, of course, to Yelena Petrovna Blavatskaya, also known as Madame Blavatsky, who is just a central figure in Western thought in the 20th century, the Western encounter with the East, global geopolitics, women's suffrage, Indian independence, you name it, and a woman who wrote a number of intriguing esoteric books. Right, I think you said it all. That's uh, that's Blavatsky in a nutshell. Um, she was a writer. She was a spiritual leader. She was a world traveler. And um, it's a bold claim, but I believe that she was the founding mother of religious studies as we know them today. And I will explain why I think so. She was an anthropologist or ethnographer even before the discipline was completely formed. And I think she shapes the way we think about religion in general um, in many ways in today's world. Uh, we can even say that without her, the New Age movement wouldn't have occurred. She was an anti-colonialist. She was a radical who argued um, that uh, we need to build a society based on racial equality, gender equality, all kinds of uh, very progressive messages that are still not uh, fully realized uh, everywhere in the world. So she was way ahead of her time. So I wonder if we could do the, the boring part first, boring but essential part, <laughs> and talk about, you know, like kind of where she's from, when she was born, all that first chapter of a biography sort of stuff, and then start to flesh out the interesting details, if you know what I mean. Yes, absolutely. Um, so Helena Petrovna Blavatskaya, or Yelena Petrovna Blavatskaya, as we pronounce her name in Russian, or just simply HBB, as a lot of her fans uh, refer to her, was born on the territory of modern Ukraine. Um, now it's Dnipropetrovsk. Uh, it used to be Yekaterinoslav. Um, so on the outskirts of the Russian Empire, and to a noble family of German and Russian descent. Um, her upbringing was truly uh, unique um, in the sense that her mother was a very well-known Russian writer. Her father was a prominent officer. Her grandfather was a governor of Saratov region, where actually I'm from. And she spent uh, her early life surrounded by tutors who taught her English language and French language. And so she was uh, fluent in many languages when she was uh, already a child. She had access to um, a unique library in her grandfather's house that apparently had books on alchemy and magic and on uh, uh, Kabbalah and other occult sciences. So, and she know she actually says that by the age of 14, she already read all of those books and didn't need any more knowledge in that respect. And um, she traveled a lot. So because of her family situation, her father was a military officer. And so he was relocated uh, quite often. And so she spent some time in very ethnically uh, diverse regions of Russia. At some point, she lived in Odessa. At some other point, she lived in Tiflis, which is now Tbilisi, which were kind of the crucibles of different religious beliefs. And she was exposed to such a variety of uh, religious creeds and of different ethnicities that left an indelible mark on her um, early on. Was there a religious vibe at home? Were they orthodox? Were they enthusiastically orthodox? Was it a bit of a free thinking kind of environment? What was the situation? Do we know? We do. We do know a lot about her, uh, the kind of the spiritual upbringing that she received. So on the one hand, her family was Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, as everybody will, would be in the 19th century Russia, just because it was such an important part of cultural and, and social life um, in Russian society. On the other hand, um, her great-grandfather was uh, a Freemason. He was extremely interested in all 
the ideas of Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism. So there was that kind of aspect or that exposure to the corpus of works belonging to that tradition. And there was also the uh, kind of the, the Buddhist upbringing because she early on had contact with Kalmyk Buddhists who inhabited uh, the territory of Russia where she lived, actually. So these are the main three sources that she had early on growing up really until up until she was a teenager and they moved to Tbilisi and that's another kind of chapter in her life. That's fascinating. So she's, there were Kalmuk Buddhists in what's now the Ukraine? Oh, that was actually when they were uh, living in a different location. So Central she, Asia. Somewhere. Yeah. And, and, mm-hmm, and in Saratov region as well. So uh, Saratov region uh, is uh, on the Volga. So up and down Volga, there were the Kalmyk tribes and, um, other Buddhists who were uh, frequently visiting the area where she lived. She also said that she uh, had long conversations with various practicing Buddhists. Interesting. Well, that was mm-hmm. that's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. That that's a bit of foreshadowing, obviously, to later. But then, what happens when they move to Tbilisi and then that phase of her life? So mm-hmm. her family's moving around because they're mm-hmm. employees of the state. Her dad's an mm-hmm. army guy. And then what happens? Because she leaves eventually. She starts traveling, doesn't she? Yes, that's correct. So after after about two years in the Saratov region, living with her grandfather and his family, um, and that happened because her mother died very young. She had consumption. Um, So her grandfather was, his new appointment was in Belize, right? And he was an aristocrat. He was, it was a wealthy family. He, they moved to Tbilisi. They buy this, the biggest house in town with allegedly a, a swimming pool and incredible gardens. And they become this center for intellectual life in the city. Um, she makes acquaintance with the brightest intellectuals in that town. And then she also makes acquaintance with um, certain Freemasons like Galitsyn, for example, who will be her spiritual advisor for a bit and probably could be credited with her, uh, with kind of inciting this this interest, this wanderlust, her desire to travel and actually find the source of ancient wisdom. So that was one part of her personality or part of her life. But she was also a teenager who was extremely inconvenient for her family because she uh, just said the truth into people's faces, and she was not deterred by any kind of conventions of society. She just did what she pleased, and, and she just did not listen to her family advice. So uh, from what we understand, part of the, the difficulty and tension that she experienced throughout her life is this kind of balancing between what's appropriate for a young lady from aristocratic family and what's not. And she uh, wrote in her memoirs that she was extremely stifled by that kind of sense of unfreedom. And she was longing to break free um, away from this family. So she makes acquaintance with this older governmental official, Nikifor Blavatsky. So again, we have to think about her as being in uh, what it was 1848 or 49. So she is about 17 years old. And Blavatsky at that point is uh, 39. And she says that he was the only one who actually would entertain her what was called crazy ideas about the, you know, the reality of, um, of other worlds, of uh, kind of the spirit world. So that was one consideration. The other one, um, from what it looks like, her family wanted to marry her off to kind of <laughs> to uh, stop worrying about her in appropriate manners. Um, so when she was uh, about 18 years old, she gets married to this older guy. And again, instead of uh, what she was looking for, she completely misunderstood what marriage will be all about and uh, finds herself in another situation when she cannot act freely. And she breaks away. She tries to escape this marriage several times. She literally tries to run away um, on a horseback. And finally, her final attempt is um, is successful. And she boards, um, well, I think she bribes uh, a captain of, a, of an English ship. And she just uh, gets onto the ship and sails away to Constantinople. Where And that's when this kind of new chapter in her life begins. So... We're talking about 1849, 1850. Okay. Before we go there, um, yes. her family, she's born in the 1830s. Yes. Does her family own serfs when she's growing up? 
I would assume so, for sure. Um, the house, I mean, every house she lived in was full of servants, at least. So we know that she preferred to play with the servants' kids and not uh, her equals, so to speak. And from what her aunt uh, tells us and her sister tells us, she was a completely indomitable child and uh, with wild imagination and with uh, uh, supernatural abilities. And there were always uh, all kinds of uh, strange paranormal events happening around her um, so growing up, she um, sleepwalked and in, entertained everybody with uh, incredible stories uh, that she apparently either made up or intuited or um, saw in her dreams. So she was a, a very imaginative child and very strong-willed. And she was very physically active. She rode horses. She was a rough girl who exhibited masculine traits, as uh, her sister said, that she... She was a kind of a gender bending being persona from early on. Um, I'd love to talk about um, gender and, and sex a bit later on, maybe. Yes, uh, sure. because that's really interesting. It's hard to imagine the um, mm -hmm. portly, intense looking Blavatskaya of later years as even being involved in sex. But we know that, like yeah. everyone else, she was. Well, we don't know. We don't. Oh, we don't know. Interesting. Cool. We don't know. There's no, no. She mark. claims she she has not. Well, I, I mean, depends on who you listen to. But according to Blavatska, she remained virgin. She never lived as a. She never was a, kind of a, a wife to Nikifor, and she um, states it several times in her memoirs that she never the the marriage was never consummated, or or uh, neither of her two marriages actually Holy were consummated, cow. and she has. Yes, but, but we need to understand that whether it's true or not, it was important for her to maintain that kind of persona who is virginal, who is completely beyond those uh, carnal desires because of her uh, presenting herself as a spiritual teacher and because of her teachings that only if you're as pure as it gets, if you're completely pure in your thoughts and in your physicality and approaching kind of the angels and saints only then you can be blessed with divine knowledge yeah now so before we move connected with her mm -hmm. yeah before sure. we move <laughs> on to constantinople i wonder if you could say anything more about the russian context because 19th century russia is a very very fascinating time and place and Oof, yeah you know she's she's like a runaway aristocrat who's mm -hmm. in some ways at least at least later on as she portrays her childhood, right? There's always this element of myth-making mm -hmm. we have to take into account. But she's portraying yes. herself in a way that, that reminds me a little bit of Lev Tolstoy, who's also who's, mm -hmm. a, who's an aristocrat who, who agitates against what he sees as a corrupt and unjust and unchristian, unspiritual system. So he's like an anti-aristocratic aristocrat, if you see what I mean. But mm -hmm. he's, of course, only able to do this because of his sort of immunity that he has in a certain way because he is an aristocrat in the first place, you know, mm -hmm. so it's, it's easy for aristocrats to slum it among the servant, mm -hmm. the servants, but it's not so easy for the servants to become aristocrats. If you see what I mean, is there anything in this, right. in this context that you want to bring out about the kind of milieu she's coming from and how she fits into it or how she really is quite extraordinary in that, in that Russian context? Well, she, um, I mean, as you pointed out, she, um, broke away with all the conventions of how she should be behaving as a, as an aristocratic lady, young lady especially. So completely inappropriate uh, in the way that she interacted with others and really not fitting in the society that surrounded her. So, so that's one aspect of her life. And the other one, parallels with Tolstoy, you're absolutely right that there were lots of parallels with Tolstoy, except Blavatsky left Russia um, when she was around 18 years old, and she will never live in Russia again for a long period of time. So she would uh, come back to Odessa, come back to visit her relatives, maybe stay there a year or two, but never really live there fully as uh, Tolstoy did. And uh, um, another aspect of that, or another important consideration, is that she um, always maintained a very strong connection with her family. And so Interestingly enough, she, she cites the family considerations in uh, when she says that she kept all her travels uh, completely um, obscure for, I mean, between what, eight, 1853 and 1873, uh, because she didn't want to cause even more problems for her family and with her family. She remained 
very devout patriot, at least in her letters. She wants to advance Russia. She wants to contribute to Russian science. She wants to contribute to Russian literature. So there is definitely this Russianness in her or the Russian aspect of her personality that has been understudied, at least in the Western Blaskoviana or Blavatskyology. <laughs> So there's that. And also, I think what we need to keep in mind is that she was a, a, in the second or kind of later part of her life, she becomes an extremely well-known and popular writer in Russia, because we talk about um, the, you know, her book, the From the Caves and Jungles of Hindustan, which is a, a famous travelogue that she wrote. Um, but I think we don't, we underestimate the impact that that travelogue had in Russia because she, it was published in one of the main, if not the most important thick journal of the time. Again, it's a, it's a little bit farther down the road, but um, still, I think it's worth mentioning. The journal where uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Turgenev and all the major Russian writers were published. So uh, she reached Russian audience very directly and thousands of educated Russians with her travelogue. And this is what exactly I will be writing about in my book. Um, or I am working on right now, but um, yes, she was. She is of a compa comparable standing to Tolstoy, and there is a problematic relation between the two because she acknowledged him as the seer and the knower and somewhat somebody who actually understands what he is talking about in terms of spiritual matters. But he failed to acknowledge her contribution, even though we know that he quotes from her works liberally but he never attributes it to Blavatsky he interesting says, oh, yes he says it's Brahmin's wisdom or wow. kind of Indian wisdom and once he was asked about her and, and he said um well she's talking about things that humans shouldn't be talking about interesting yes so, so he's, he had a very yeah mm -hmm. she's um she's breaking the esoteric veils that should be yes should be yes kept put it back on, on right <laughs> tuck it away <laughs> So it's interesting how Tolstoy comes out as a prude in, in that sense, right? Kind uh, of yeah. spiritual prude. That's interesting. But was, is that to do with the fact that she's a woman going around doing, doing manly stuff, do you think? That's part of it. It's also because her reputation was kind of precarious in Russia for a variety of reasons, because what he knows about her is mostly the gossip that surrounded her that was, uh, you know, perpetrated by her family, those who knew her a little bit in Russia. And nobody really knew exactly, like, who she was and didn't really take the time to reach out directly and talk to her. So she was often dismissed as like, oh, yeah, I know everything about her. She's just a con artist, a charlatan, a crazy traveling lady. You know? Okay. Um, yeah. Now, one other so, question before we move on. Mm -hmm. She's doing all this. She's run away from her husband and gone and mm -hmm. hit the road. Presumably mm -hmm. she has a trust fund or something. She's getting money from her family, right? How does she pay for all this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, uh, we know that her father supported her throughout her travels, and right. he uh, was uh, probably one of the very few people who actually knew where she was exactly. Because he has to know uh, where to send the check, right? Yes, yes, exactly, yes. So, so he was the source of support uh, for many years until 1873 when he died. And actually, that's where she finds herself in America and waiting for the check. And the check is not coming in and she doesn't know yet that he died. So that's kind of a, a tragic twist in her story. But she was also very entrepreneurial. She set up different shops and different businesses wherever she was. Uh, we know that she had... Um, artificial flower shop at some point she invented ink special ink that she sold and she sold actually the whole business with it she gave concerts and supported herself uh, through that activity when she was in london she performed uh, allegedly in a circus uh, in constantinople in the first kind of phase of her journey so she was a, a lady who was just indomitable and nobody could stop her and very inventive so she definitely knew how to make money and how to survive so she gets to constantinople mm -hmm. in the ottoman empire the then ottoman empire and what's she do there she says that she decides to take part in the competition and uh, for 1000 well the the equivalent i guess of 1000 rubles um she has to ride a horse and um, she apparently uh, damaged her back while doing that Again, the rumors that reached Russia and were actually 
propagated by one of her relatives, uh, Sergei Vita, who becomes uh, one of the most important governmental officials under Nicholas II. So when he publishes, or his memoirs were published posthumously, but that's when he kind of casually mentions that she works at a circus, which is, you know, true, but also not really true. She wasn't like an employed, you know, circus performer. So it's just one stunt that she did. And that's, I think, what characterizes her best because she was so open and so adventurous and so interested in new experiences that um, it's kind of hard for people of her time and even now to wrap their heads around like why would she do this why would she fight on the side of Garibaldi and, and be wounded in combat like what, what's going on there with her so that's why I think she's so puzzling because she's just wanted to grab the life by the horns experience it fully physically spiritually and that's something that is very compelling in her personality, I believe. So she's riding around on horses in Constantinople. Yes. And from there, well, she's... Well, that's among other things. Uh -huh. she, she somehow ends up fighting for Italian independence. Well, I mean, that, that will be later yeah. on. Yeah. But, but I think what we also need to know that she was always guided by this quest for knowledge and wisdom. And, I mean, she embarks on this quest uh, or escapes her marriage, not just to escape the marriage, but actually to find the source of secret wisdom that she believes is somewhere else. It's outside of Europe. And so her quest takes her to Cairo. So because she looks for this occult knowledge and magic and all kinds of um, exciting things in Egypt. And then she goes to, I mean, first it was Constantinople, then it was Egypt. Then she travels to India, allegedly, and tries to get into Tibet and then back to London. And, and then she goes to the United States. So there are all kinds of different places that she travels in search for that kind of knowledge. Okay. Now, the quest for knowledge to mm -hmm. all the usual places, that would be Egypt and India, among <laughs> others, mm -hmm. is a very, very old trope, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that HPB indulged in a, a certain amount of um, mythography about her own life. So the question then becomes, did she actually go to these places? Hmm, great question. And I think, yes, it is an old trope, but I think that's exactly what she um, criticized such important scholars um, of India, like uh, Max Muller, because he never visited India. He's like an armchair armchair exactly. anthropologist in, indologist right right and she set out to prove everybody wrong in a way and to to actually go there and engage with the material and find the texts and look at the texts and learn the language so she wanted to do it right uh that's i think what sets her apart from others so we do know that her attempts to go to india happened in 1852 and then 1856 and then later on when it's well documented when she goes with a, a Henry Steele Alcott. So there are several attempts to go and there are several attempts to go to Tibet. And um, she keeps those details obscure on purpose and she never really tells us exactly what happened during those veiled years, so to speak. So what and, happened? Mm -hmm. Tell yeah, us. What happened? <laughs> what happened? We do have um, evidence or we do have um some accounts from the British officials that, yes, they, they saw her there. They saw her in Ladakh, um, which was called the Little Tibet. So maybe she studied in the Little Tibet and didn't get exactly into Tibet itself. So um, there are certain ways of learning and, and studying that period of her life. What she claims is that she spent several years studying, well, the, the sacred and secret language sensor and reading the sacred texts that are not available to Westerners. Again, she doesn't really go into too many details about that part of her journey, but she builds her kind of legitimacy in such a way that she knows the language, she read the texts, she knows them. Now, maybe this is a good point at which to bring up the great game and the, some of the political background. Listeners might be asking, why are British officials even noticing this private traveling woman in Ladakh? Like, why would she be of interest to them? And the answer is, of course, because she's Russian, right? Mm -hmm. So can you just fill us in briefly on what's going on with politics and Central Asia and all that stuff? Oh, a lot of stuff was going on there. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so the great games. Well, you coming from Britain, what do you know about the great game? My understanding of the great game is it's a term that was coined, of course, by Rudyard Kipling. Uh, but 
to refer to the struggle f- between Britain and her Central Asian Empire, basically Northern India pushing north, and the growing Russian power, which was just gobbling up Central Asia throughout the 19th century, bit by bit, with the idea being that inevitably we're going to have to face off in Tibet or Afghanistan <laughs> around there. And one of only one side can win. So huge amounts of diplomacy on both sides were devoted to outmaneuvering each other in Central Asia. And Central mm-hmm. Asia is full of polylingual Russian agents who know 10 Central Asian languages kind of moving around, getting to know people, talking to lamas, and, and exactly the same thing from the Indian, the Anglo-Indian side, right? There, There's these all these agents and um, wandering around and there's lots of skullduggery going on mm-hmm. with, the, with the aim of controlling... Central Asia and thus thus Eurasia. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, from the Russian point of view, of course, uh, the Russian Empire wanted to expand in that direction. Throughout 19th century, uh, we do have well-documented ambitions by the Russian Tsars to annex various territories. And most notably uh, with Nicholas II, of course, it, it will be a little later and after uh, Blavatsky um, died. Um, so he had ambitions of annexing Tibet and making it Russian. And his uh, ambitions in that area were fueled by various advisors like Badmayev, who believed that uh, all that area should be Russian, including India and China. And um, yeah, <laughs> you're laughing, but but those are the realities that Russians lived with. They just really felt that this is their territory by right. And um, later on in the Soviet time, or like the pre-Soviet times, there were all those ideas that um, uh, Tibet is this kind of um, the, the mystical land of Shambhala that needs to be um, under Russian dominance. Well, coming back to Blavatsky, she really believed that uh, India would have been better off under Russian rule. She often wrote about the excesses of uh, British colonialism, how uh, the British are mistreating the uh, local population on so many levels. She was absolutely outraged by that. And she did help uh, the local liberation movement, Arya Samaj and their leader, to gain greater prominence in the kind of international arena. She promoted that movement. She was closely associated with it. So that's like one side of the question, like on the, from the point of view of mistreatment and of uh, human beings, like she was passionately against what the British were doing in India. Now, there were all those accusations that she was a Russian spy, actually actively working to undermine the British rule in India. So do we know whether it's true or not? We do know that in 1872, she did write a letter to the Russian Third Department or the secret police offering her services to um, do work, to be an agent hired by the Russian government um, to do international work. Um, she said that she has access to de- different dignitaries, to pre- representatives, like diplomats and um, politicians from different countries who wanted to know more about the kind of connect with the spirits. And, and um, uh, in this way, they divulged various secrets that could be useful to the Russian government in their kind of, uh, you know, various political schemes and, and projects. So the copy of this letter is right now in Moscow in the archives. Anybody can go and take a look at it. Uh, There were some graphological tests, at least two that I know of, that confirmed that this is the handwriting of Madame Blavatsky. And so there's that aspect. But we do not know whether there was any kind of response to that letter. So that was not part of the record. It's not on file. And it's, I mean, it's still um, ambiguous. My feeling is that she was not employed by the Russian government. Um, she was not on the payroll. And if she um, interfered in the British dominance in India, it was out of her own volition and out of her own conviction that India should not be under the British rule. That's fascinating. Do you know what, what her rationale was for thinking that India would be better off under Russian rule? Because it's not a priori obvious to me that the Russians are going to treat <laughs> the Indians any better than the British. Uh-huh. She uh, actually draws parallels with a. Uh, what Russians are doing in Central Asia, and they do not suppress the use of local languages. They do not try to convert local populations into Russian orthodoxy, which is, you know, a point that you can argue about. So some of her letters, especially to Aksakov, who was her publisher in Russia, had a very specific kind of patriotic tone 
that she knew that would uh, make her writings more well received in Russia during that time. Right. And it feels like she might have might have praised Russian policies in her writings to kind of sneak in the actual thing that she cared about, which is theosophical teachings. And um, yeah, so kind of a as I call it, the Trojan horse, so her travelogue that she writes, I mean, the, from the caves and jungles of Hindustan, I show how she uses it as a Trojan horse to sneak in the ideas that actually matter to her. Okay. We should get to those ideas, shouldn't we? But, yes. but, but before we do that, maybe, can you, can you draw at least a, a quick sketch of her travels? So she's shown up in Constantinople, yes. and then she spends, then, then there's this sort of lost years, which... Well, <laughs> the veiled years. The veiled years. A. Paul Johnson's expression, yes. Uh, so um, not everything is completely unknown about that. Again, going back to Constantinople, and then she goes to Egypt and spends about three months there living with the Countess Sofia Kisilov and uh, making acquaintance with a famous American Renaissance man, Albert Rawson. I don't know, probably familiar with him. And so he later writes his memoirs about that encounter. Uh, then she goes to Paris. She goes to London in 1851. She lives in London uh, with one of the family friends and again, feeling stifled. But then she also meets her teacher, her Mahatma or the master, the adept for the first time in London in 1851. So this is one of the kind of pivotal moments in her life. So we can say that um, 1849, when she escapes Russia or 19, 1850, was one of them, 1851, when she meets her teacher in person and he instructs her on what to do next on her quest for the real knowledge. And then she, on the orders of the teacher, travels to the United States where she also learns the all kinds of things. Um, she goes from Canada all the way down south. She goes through Texas. She goes to Louisiana to study voodoo. She works with shamans in on the territory of Texas, then she goes to Central America, then she goes to South America, then she returns. So uh, she goes uh, to India in 1852, landing in Bombay at that time. Then she goes back to New York and spends two years in the United States traveling from the East Coast to the West Coast. Then, um, so you can already see how much, I mean, literally how much she travels around the time when travel was extremely difficult, uh, yeah. extremely taxing on the body, and especially being a woman and going to all those places. So around 1856, she goes back to India for the second time. And again, as I mentioned, tries to get into Tibet for the second time. Then she goes, uh, briefly stays in Russia, goes uh, to Europe as well. And then finally, it's in 18. 73, she arrives in New York in July of that year. And that's when she actually wrote that from that point on, everything about my travel and what I do will be known. So this is another decisive point when she just says that um, enough of that obscurity, I'm done, I'm, I'm done learning and uh, building myself as a kind of spiritual vessel. And now I'm going to act in open, I guess. Okay. In the open. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get into this acting in the open, and that brings mm -hmm. us to the Theosophical Society and stuff, which probably is, you know, the, the lovers of Western esotericism are saying, come on, get onto the Theosophical Society, let's go. <laughs> but um, that's, that's just not good enough. Before we get to that, what about meeting the Mahatma in London? What do we know about this? Do we know who this Mahatma is? The, the teacher who shows up then um, is sometimes referred to as just Master M., right, or later called Moria, and probably uh, somebody from the Bengali uh, area of India, she's right, possibly uh, somebody of an aristocratic origin, so from Brahman's caste, and um, that uh, meeting was life-changing for her. Uh, what, I guess, when we think about controversies surrounding that incident is that in her diary, she wrote that she met with her teacher in one location, and then she wrote that she met him in London. So there's that discrepancy that she later explained as intentional. She did not want people to know exactly the whereabouts of that teacher and what he was doing and when they actually met. So um, they met in London from what we understand, she said, um, and 
she, um, in, he gave her instructions on what to do next. She met him several times later on, but then when she went to India for two years, she only um, corresponded with him through letters and mm. she never met him again while she stayed in India for two years. So it is very mysterious. I mean, all of the kind of adepts and masters, it's hard to fully establish their identities and put a definitive or give a definitive answer on whether they existed or not or who exactly they were. So she said that her teachers are part of the brotherhood that resides in Tibet. But sometimes she amends that, oh, we can also find this brotherhood in Syria and in Egypt as well. So um, that's a kind of loosely defined brotherhood of adepts. So ascended masters, the human beings who reached the uh, highest levels of spiritual attainment, but chose to stay on earth to give instructions to humans who are kind of um, open to receive those instructions, basically to advance the age when all humanity will evolve and understand their divine nature and come together as universal brotherhood based on the system of ethics, based on internal verities. So uh, she was chosen um, as one of those humans who will bring about that kind of evolution of humanity. There's so much to pick apart there, both yeah. in terms of where this idea is coming from. I mean, mm -hmm. assuming just for the purposes of discussion that it isn't just literally true, that there isn't just right. a great white brotherhood. So much to pick apart in terms of where the idea, where she's getting this idea from, because it reminds mm -hmm. me of bodhisattvas, but it also reminds yes. me of ideas from Sufism and Kabbalah. And it maybe mm -hmm. reminds me of the Freemasonry that she yes, kind of was absolutely. in the milieu when she was growing up. Absolutely. But then also to talk about the incredible influence that had later on from hardcore occultists like the Golden Dawn mm -hmm. through to the New Age, where people believe in sort of ascended people who've gone to like a higher vibrational level and are... Mm -hmm fostering the evolution of humanity to the next paradigm or whatever that we're just going to have to devote a special episode to that yes. idea right because it's mm -hmm. just too resonant but um let's continue let's forge ahead in the phenomenal history of the 19th century because then she comes to new york and basically meets some interesting people in new york and the theosophical society is born right or have we skipped <laughs> some really crucial stuff on the way to the theosophical right. society <laughs> Well, that's so vexing about uh, studying Blavatsky because there's just so much to study yeah. and so many different angles. And um, honestly, sometimes it feels overwhelming between her personal life, her travels, her writings, her uh, political involvement, her interactions on all kinds of in all kinds of different things, and and her um, her life, you know, beyond death, after death, right, or in her teaching. So she is a, a difficult subject to study, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't. So talking about, as she later wrote, she was chosen by the Mahatmas to go to New York. So she was a woman on a mission. And she says that she didn't completely understand why she needed to go there. But she did. When she landed in New York, she, um, I mean, from the objective point of view, it's understandable that she wanted to go to the land of spiritual opportunity. Um, because that uh, was the country where you could actually start your own religion and and start your own movement it's a country that was very open to various ways of getting in touch with the divine uh, forces so she goes to the farm where allegedly there were lots of paranormal activity and she wants to study the phenomenon she just immerses herself in that studies when she arrives at the farm lots of different um, strange events start occurring, they intensify, and that's where she meets with uh, Henry Steele Alcott, who's been covering those events, and she claims later that he was, uh, I mean, their meeting was um, designed by the Mahatmas, so the Mahatmas picked them both because both of them possessed necessary qualities to advance the mission that we're on. So, Well, Alcott mm -hmm. is certainly an extraordinary character that will We'll also yes. have to be covering in the yes, in the some, yeah, some other time. Yeah, <laughs> it um, doesn't quite fit here, but they do form a very useful kind of union because they bring in different uh, qualities and different kind of baggage in a good way to this uh, to the society. So uh, they they start talking about those issues, and um, if you I don't know if you're familiar with the albums or scrapbooks that she carefully assembled through the years, um, they feature the cutouts from the newspapers of um, Alcott's first articles 
uh, about her. And then she added some embellishments, her like handwritten notes and uh, kind of cute little pictures that she cut out out of like postcards that uh, depict him and her kind of dancing together. And we know that they have this very fun relationship when um, he called her Jack, she called him Maloney, and they had this very interesting spiritual friendship throughout the years. And they decide to found a society, don't they? Yes, yes. Uh, it had several different iterations until 1875, when at the, one of the meetings of the, I mean, not secret society, but semi-secret society, um, they decide to just start a new movement, start a new society that would be called Theosophical Society. Dun, dun, dun! dun. Yes, we reached it. We arrived at that <laughs> moment, <laughs> the pivotal moment in probably the spiritual history of 19th century. Yes, yeah. One of the very important moments. In a flat in New York. Correct. Yes. And when, I mean, I think it, in that moment is just so fascinating when she just gives him a handwritten note saying like, hey, why don't we just start our new society to study all things occult and esoteric and come up with our own, um, our own spiritual society. Yeah. But it's devoted to... I mean, the, the, as I recall, the, the charter of the Theosophical Society's it's sort, of, it's sort of stated mission is something like founding universal brotherhood and equality or something like that, right? Yes, yes, yes. And it, um, and it unites all of the people who want to pursue truth and right. study various religious and, and spiritual traditions. So it is not a religion. I mean, in their own definition, they didn't want to start a new cult or religion. And they said that's just a kind of a free society where spiritual seekers and truth seekers come together to discuss ideas coming from different uh, philosophical and religious traditions. Okay. So that's the, yeah, you have to be pure of heart and you have to have those highest ideals and uh, ideas about finding the truth as your motivation to join Mm. (laughs) that uh, society. And it just explodes, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. The society becomes incredibly popular. Um, mm-hmm. incredibly quickly and uh, it becomes incredibly rich even you know they they end up owning tons of property and um, assets all over the world and that's in itself a, a big story that has to be explored the the evolution of the theosophical society mm-hmm. but in terms of just hpb's life if i were to say that the next really big thing we need to talk about is is when they move to india am mm-hmm. i am i skipping lots of really important stuff by saying that well, yes. Okay, tell me about <laughs> as that. As always, as always with her life. <laughs> we skip a year and we skip so many things. But, um, I mean, the society becomes extremely popular in 1875 and, and beyond, right? But then she gets this idea that it's time to move to India and it's her next destination. And that's where um, she needs to be for the you know next phase of her life. Um, now, some of the scholars argue that this move was prompted by hostility that was accumulating um, around her and the society in the United States and in Europe. So we can cite various uh, kind of reasons uh, on the kind of the physical plane, but she in her own thoughts was guided by the desire to be closer to the source of the knowledge. And that's why there was this imperative to go to India and establish the headquarters of the Theosophical Society in Adyar. And that's what they did. They moved to India and then I mean, I think the interesting aspect of all of this is also that in 1875, she writes, okay, this is it. It's going to start. Shit hit the fan at that moment. And she knew that she will meet with so much resistance from uh, various people. And she was ready for that fight. So that moment happened. What kind of people are going to be resisting Uh, her? Yeah. So, okay. Christian fundamentalists. I mean, what are we talking about? Yes, Christian fundamentalists, but I mean, interestingly, spiritualists would be um, all against her because she um, was extremely critical of spiritualism in general. And um, I don't know if we want to talk more about that, but I think it's an important uh, page in her in her history because initially and Actually, even now, when you talk about Blavatsky, a lot of people would say, like, oh, the spiritualist. But she's not. I mean, she wasn't because she said that, sure, I believe that there are energies that we cannot see. There are spirits. But I'm not a spiritualist because I do not believe that we should be connecting with them. I don't think that we should be channeling any kind of dead people's wishes. It's dangerous. It's harmful. It's not true. 
And so she started criticizing spiritualism in their kind of main magazine, their main outlet based in Boston that was called Spiritual Scientist. So she started coming out, coming out with a critical articles saying that this is basically wrong and what what necromancy is wrong and you guys shouldn't be engaging in that and that of course was met with incredible backlash because spiritualism was um extremely popular during that time in the united states in europe and russia everywhere people were holding seances they tried to communicate with their dead relatives all over the world i mean even notably nicholas ii tried to summon the the spirit of his dead father because he was just so lost and didn't know how to rule Russia. So everybody was engaging it. The aristocracy, the the middle class, the poor people. So and then here she comes saying that this is not uh, a good idea and this is harmful and just not true because the dead souls kind of don't hang around. And what we're dealing with is the elemental energies that are kind of fragments and harmful kind of spirits. And if you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't be engaging in that those things because this is black magic and this is bad so she gets a lot of backlash from the spiritualism. spiritualists yeah spiritualists really interesting and uh not so much from spiritists because as you as you know there are just like two big movements one was more popular in france with alan kardak and and his movement that actually believed in reincarnation and karma and that's where um i think blavatsky is more aligned with and then there is spiritualism that was more prevalent in the United States and they did not believe in reincarnation and just uh, believe that a person dies, a spirit, you know, is still somewhere around and you can summon them to get answers and to kind of get some kind of closure to their lives. Yeah. They basically believe in ghosts. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, so she's got that, she's got trouble in the, what I guess you might call the world of new religious movements in which yes. she's, she's a player. Mm-hmm. She's a new player. They're publishing this right. journal out of Boston. Right. Um, and they were very active in publishing, weren't they? I mean, there's like theosophical yes. journals popping up all over the place. Um, yes. Yes. But she starts to feel the heat in some way. Yes. Is she actually being attacked? Are people saying, you know, Blavatsky with her blah, blah, blah is wrong. And really we need, to, is it, is it like that? Yes, 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 for sure. And there was a huge falling out with the editor of, of that, um, that magazine that I mentioned, uh, spiritual scientists and there were all kinds of um, accusations of fraud already in this uh, early period and uh, well i mean that's on some level is understandable because people wanted to hold on to their beliefs they were so excited to find spiritualism and here comes the you know this russian lady and telling them that it's all wrong but there's also the imperative again as i mentioned before to go to india and to go to the sources and establish the greater presence there and kind of uh, to establish a headquarters that would be kind of the seat of theosophy for why, years to come. Why do you think India is the source for her? But because she believed that, uh, well, I mean, that, that goes back to her um, set of philosophical beliefs, because she thought that all the religions have the same core of truths, but in some religions, it got um, they got obscured by, you know, because of the human factor, um, so to speak. But in Hinduism and in India, the sacred texts were still preserved that actually were closer to the truth that she mentioned. So this, from this perspective of Western esotericism, this is a huge, important moment because people have been saying analogous things about um, the Philosophia Perennis or the, the ancient tradition of truth, and you can mm-hmm. find it in all true traditions. But then what do you look to? Hermes Trismegistus, the Bible, maybe Plato, mm-hmm. maybe Plotinus, maybe mm-hmm. the alchemists, whatever. But you basically stay in the West, right? Um, right. But and, but she didn't deny all those sources. No, she but she's says, just expanding yeah. the scope. She's saying, ah, but exactly. we can also include India. Yes. The, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, nod to India all the time. They say, ah, the Brahmanis, yes. the, the gymnosophists, they're very fascinating and they're wonderful. And, you know, in um, Philostratus' well, life of Apollonius of Tiana, he goes to India and meets the Brahmins and they speak perfect Attic Greek and it's it's all very wonderful. <laughs> but in terms of an actual engagement, in terms of going and becoming a Buddhist, you know, this this we haven't seen until now in um, in a major Western esoteric movement. Right, and that's why she serves as a uh, bridge between the East and, and the West, right? So Eastern and Western um, 
esoteric traditions. And so she doesn't deny any of them. She says, well, let's see how we can merge them together, how we can bring about the unity of all the religions of all the sects and, and all the nations and create something bigger and better than we ever saw before. Um, so she does believe that um, the Vedas contain those grains of truth that need to be brought back to people and made available to people. So that's why that was one of her missions that, that she wanted to do in India. But her work was complicated there because she was um, always um, followed by the British agents who wanted to see where she's going and what is she doing and how she's hanging out with the locals. So, um, so there was that kind of resistance and, and kind of those obstacles uh, for her work in India. There's also the hatred of the Christian missionaries in India because for them, she was um, kind of a strange agent. Uh, I mean, obviously she was not Christian. She thought that some ideas of um, Jesus Christ were good ideas, but not all of them. And definitely she did not approve of what Christian church was doing for um, centuries. So she was a very uncomfortable presence for the missionaries and they played a very crucial role in kind of bringing down the Theosophical Society and, and kind of uh, tarnishing their reputation and and the famous Coulomb affair uh, when the, you know, that couple went to the missionaries and said like, well, that she's a fraud. And the missionaries are like, okay, well, let's take a look at this and see how we can use it. Yeah, so the, at least two forces were working against her when she tried to establish the Theosophical Society in Adyar. Uh, but on the third hand, if we had it, um, there was also a very enthusiastic embrace of what the Theosophical Society was doing in India from educated Indians who recovered their heritage through uh, or partly through what Theosophical Society was trying to do. And it's not a very well-known fact that Gandhi actually read the Bhagavad Gita for the first time because she, it was suggested by Theosophical Society to him. And he um, writes about that, how he was crying at this realization of how profound and incredible that heritage was that he didn't really have a close connection with growing up in India. There's so much work to be done for, <laughs> yes. for, from scholarship on, on the way yes. in which, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if we were to do, if we were to do a religio intellectual study of the current ruling elite party in India now, with their Hindu nationalist ideology, how much of this could actually be traced to evolutions of ideas that originally go to the Theosophical Society? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yes, but I think what is very unique about Theosophical Society is that they are not saying that, okay, we're doing something absolutely new or listen to us or we're selling you this idea. No, they're saying that we're unearthing that something that's already there. We just yeah. need to go back to it. We need to validate it or to unearth it and bring it to people. So they saw themselves as educators and those who connected uh, humanity to their origins in a way. So they go to Adyar. They found mm -hmm. the Theosophical Society there, in the, the mm -hmm. official world headquarters, which is still there, no? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Open, functioning. You can go and study um, her legacy in their archives. And actually, a lot of scholars still do go there. And she and Olcott become members of a Buddhist Sangha, don't they? They officially Buddhify. Yes, and, and that's happened in Sri Lanka, yeah, from, from there. I mean, that's their account of the events. Right. Yes, they, so they convert to Buddhism, but uh, with conversions and um, that side of her story, I would be a little more careful because... Even earlier on, she claims that she converted to Druze faith, which we know is impossible because you have to be born Druze right. to in turn, I mean, <laughs> in order to be one. So I would proceed with caution because I think sometimes she just so intensely tries to embody those ideas or is very um, enthusiastic about certain ideas that she just says that, well, I'm the convert now, or like, I'm this, I'm that. So um, with Buddhism as well, I'm, I'm curious to see what exactly it means that they convert to Buddhism, because uh, also Alcott never stopped being a spiritualist. And, and this is actually interesting, because they that's why they uh, disagree um, a lot of times. And uh, for uh, and for her Russian editor, Aksakov, she writes that I've always been a devout Christian and very orthodox. And so, like, we're, 
I think for us, it's important to know that she valued all of those traditions and they were all important to her. So this is why maybe she was like a living example of how you can embody and, and kind of have this eclectic religious worldview that doesn't contradict each other or those views don't contradict each other. Yeah. Waiting in the wings is the obvious counterblast that she was just a bullshitter and was, you know, a, like a chameleon and she could be whatever she thought someone wanted to hear. So she's she's orthodox one minute and then she's a Druze the next minute and then she's, <laughs> you know, a Buddhist this minute and then she's a Hindu and then she's, you know, do you know what I'm saying? There's, mm -hmm. Yes, I um, absolutely know those accusations very well. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yes. And, and there is a theory that she presented her, or her, she constructed her spiritual teacher's persona in a way that, uh, for example, Gurdjieff did. So that kind of controversial teacher who is here to shake you out of your sleepy state and, and kind of wake you up. So somehow like a, a Zen Buddhist, I don't know, a teacher just smacking you on the head with a stick so that you can gain enlightenment. That's definitely could be part of her arsenal, how she is bringing the message to the humanity that's asleep with their prejudices and, and just doesn't see their own limitations. Right on. And does she then live in India for the rest of her life? Does she keep traveling? Uh, she, I think she would have liked to, but um, she goes to back to Europe in 1884 together with Henry Steele Alcott. And while she's in Europe, the whole Coulomb affair explodes in India, making it very difficult for her to come back. I mean, she doesn't come back after that from what I understand. She was uh, accused of, uh, of fraud uh, and the accusations are extremely serious. It's by Emma and Alexis Coulomb, who she had a very long history with them starting in 1871 when they first met in Cairo and she was in difficult situation and that couple helped her out a lot. And then when she founded Theosophical Society in IDR, uh, they found themselves in dire straits and she helped them out by employing them at the Theosophical Society at the headquarters. Uh, and apparently they carried out all kinds of tasks for her from cooking to, you know, maintenance of the premises and, you know, fixing things around. And then they accused her of fraud saying that she ordered them to construct the secret doors and passageways so she could dupe those visitors to the headquarters and um, kind of engage in trickery that would convince people of her special abilities. Right. So she could like magically materialize in rooms Correct. and stuff like that. And, and Emma produced uh, letters allegedly from Blavatsky with those instructions that, that uh, were used to confirm that she was a fraud and she was just trying to get rich, I guess, and, and manipulate the population. And I suppose from the British perspective, it's not so much manipulate the population as so unrest and dissatisfaction with British rule among the population. That'd be what they would really be worried about. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I think that was one of the kind of more implicit reasons. Um, okay. They would try to dismantle her reputation uh, on the grounds of fraud, but not necessarily state openly that they just wanted her removed from in India. Right. Together with the missionaries. So they go to the missionaries, they complain to them, letters are published, the, the whole affair becomes blown out of proportion. And it also coincides with the appearance of the notorious Hodgson report. What's um, that? Tell us about um, that. So the Society for Psychic Research decided to study the phenomena surrounding um, spiritualism and, well, I mean, again, misguided attempt to study Blavatsky as a spiritualist. But they sent uh, this person, Hodgson, among other people, to India to investigate what's going on there. And uh, the report basically concludes that she was a fraud and a charlatan and that she was an imposter and she doesn't possess any kind of mediumship abilities. And though that report is 200 pages long and it is completely flawed. It had selection bias because it focused on specific documents and events that were not really that relevant to what the society was trying to do. It was also based on the Coulomb, so-called Coulomb letters. So that probably are forgeries anyway. So it wasn't the truly objective investigation. It feels that it was extremely biased and it also had an agenda of dismantling philosophical society's influence in India and getting them expelled from the country. Hmm. So that came out in 1885. And it's all available online. Anybody can read it if, if, you know, if you're interested. 
And um, Blavatsky had problems with that. And she said that it just wasn't done right. And it's focusing on minute details that are not even important to my message or to our message. Mm. Again, it was focusing on the external kind of, you know, trick or like phenomena or like apparitions. And it didn't focus on the message of the movement. And after that, I mean, after all of that, I think we can talk about the next kind of phase in her life and, and the development of Theosophical Society. Let's do that. Yes. So she spends, um, well, I guess we never talked about her actual books. No, I, I, <laughs> wanted, I want to talk about her books because, so Isis Unveiled and The Secret yes. Doctrine. These are uh -huh. her two big, famous magnum yes. opera, right? Yes. And these have been, well, these are undeniably classics of Western esoteric literature that have had a profound impact on modern spirituality, modern um, esoteric religion. But they are also described by some as sort of hodgepodges of even, even plagiarized material, depending on what your definition of plagiarism is. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, so uh, you're absolutely right. So those are the two major works. And uh, the first one was written when she was when she was still in the United States. Um, so Isis Unveiled came out in 1878, and it was a complete commercial success. I mean, the the publisher could not, um, you know, couldn't print uh, enough copies. They were just gobbled up by the the population, and everybody just wanted to read her. And she became an instant celebrity. She claims that she didn't get rich from that project, and she just invested all of that money that she received from the sale of books back into the Theosophical Society. Um, so that placed her on the map very powerfully. Um, and that's when, I mean, she became extremely famous and kind of achieved that celebrity status that she would um, enjoy until the end of her life. Now, the first book was focused more on the kind of the secret wisdom and the occult trends coming from Egypt. And then after another decade, because uh, a decade separates Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine, her second big book. During that time, she did even more traveling and more studying and more refining of her or her set of philosophical beliefs. So um, The Secret Doctrine is a very different book. Yes, so accusation of plagiarism. And I'm, I'm just, uh, yes, amused because uh, she never claimed to be the generator of that knowledge. She said that she's just a vessel, a channeling kind of uh, entity. She just brings out or just condenses science, religion, various philosophical trends in one book. What is also interesting is that she instructs one of her fans he, when he asks her, well, how do I read the secret doctrine? Because it's so dense and and you know as you mentioned the hodgepodge of information from various places and she says that this book points you toward the truth if you are looking for a definite answer on how uh, this world this universe functions you will be confused that's what she says herself and then she said you just need to be aware that it will take you in the direction of truth so from what we understand now, well, I understand anyway, uh, is that her books were kind of um, there to ignite this thirst for more knowledge and for more exploration. And uh, kind of uh, it supports one of her main beliefs in personal freedom, that you should be free to choose what you want to believe. And here is the all kinds of traditions condensed in one book, and you can pick and choose and see what resonates with you. So she's published these books. She's become a celebrity, not only as a well-known worker within this big and growing community, the Theosophical Society, which is truly international, mm -hmm. but also a well-read author in English of two classics of modern spirituality. Mm -hmm. And numerous articles. Yeah. and Both in English and in Russian, actually in French as well. Okay. And then she can't go back to India. When she leaves Adyart, does she sort of leave some trusted lieutenants in charge of affairs there and uh, move on to... So, in other words, the Theosophical Society is still doing its thing while she's away. Right, right, and, right. Yes, yes. And, she does designate uh, trusted people. But um, we also have to know, I mean, to understand that she was suffering from ill health at that point. So part of the considerations of why she moved from India back to Europe is to gain access to better health care because she became very ill towards the end of her life. So, and it was part of the official reason why she moved to 
England, and she spent last years of her life working on the Sikh doctrine there and putting together other important books. Um, in fact, I would recommend if anybody is interested in kind of the condensed ideas of theosophy to read uh, The Key to Theosophy, a book that she wrote in 1889 that's much more accessible in terms of her ideas or what theosophy stands for and where it comes from and how she envisions its future. So it's designed as a Q&A between the theosophist, which is, you know, obviously Blavatsky, and uh, kind of an outsider who is just curious to see what kind of organization, what is it? What is theosophy that's so popular around the world? And um, she lives out her final days in Europe? Yes, she um, she lives in London. Um, she is supported by her fans and friends and other theosophists, and she enjoys very nice last years of her life. I mean, it's an interesting question because she is constantly attacked, right? So in press, people say like, oh, she's the, just the, doesn't know what she's doing. She's a charlatan. She's trying to do people. But on the other hand, she always lived the life of her dreams. She was pursuing what she believed to be her true mission, which is to find wisdom. She was surrounded by intellectuals or surrounded by people who also were truth seekers or spiritual seekers. She traveled a lot. And then she got to spend last year's living in London with her close friends and forming this kind of a, a small tight-knit circle of uh, people who um, she believed could become adepts. Hmm. But this is a kind of a different chapter in her life when she crystallizes her ideas in a kind of a more direct and accessible way as opposed to Isis Unveiled and, and other uh, more obscure books. And she actually comes up with a set of rules for those who want to belong to that kind of secret society within theosophical movement. And that is curiously similar to what Tolstoy wanted out of his disciples. So um, just to just briefly mention the things that you should or shouldn't do, you should be celibate, you should not drink alcohol, you should not eat meat, and you should be extremely pure in your thoughts, and you should be meeting with uh, like-minded people very regularly. And this is exactly what Tolstoyanism actually said that you should do if you want to advance spiritually. Hmm. But that was a very late part of her life. It's closer to her death in 1891. Tell us about her death in 1891. Oh, she was uh, actually the, the victim of the flu pandemic. So she died of the flu. Wow. Um, Topically yeah. appropriate in 2020. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Um, she was cremated in England and in one of the first crematoriums. And her letters and her um, archives are scattered around the world, famously in Wheaton, Illinois, and some of her letters, actually the Mahatma letters that are so controversial that people doubt whether the Mahatma as a teacher wrote it or she herself wrote them. Everyone can see them. They were initially housed at the British Museum and now in the British Library. And so they're like open access. The, the beauty of theosophy is this. You can make your own decisions of what you want to believe spiritually. And if you want to see the letters for yourself and to kind of run expertise, you can also do that and, and decide for yourself who, who is the author. Uh, Marina Alexandrova, yes. thank you so much for speaking to us about <laughs> HPB. Thank you so much for having me. Stay esoteric. <laughs>